Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, November 8, 2017 edition of uh, our little weather get-together every week. This is um, the episode about the Joint Polar Satellite System, JPSS-1. And tonight we have Dr. Mitch Goldberg on with us. He is the uh, NOAA Chief Scientist and uh, will be uh, live on the launch site as JPSS-1 gets launched next week. So happy to have uh, Dr. Goldberg with us tonight, and we'll uh, let him introduce himself here in just a little bit. Before we do that, for those who are watching tonight, there's a, uh, many ways that you can interact with us. Uh, you can uh, view us on Facebook Live or our Periscope uh, live stream. If you have any questions uh, while you're watching those live streams, just go ahead and uh, Submit them in the uh, little comment box there, and we'll be monitoring those throughout the show. Or if you're watching on our YouTube uh, live page, you can uh, submit comments there. Or you can contact us via Twitter at Carolina WX Group or on our Facebook page. So there's lots of ways tonight to get your uh, questions asked and answered uh, throughout the show. We'll be monitoring those um, as well. So I think that is all the uh, housekeeping rules before... Um, before we go live, I will say if you're listening to our podcast, maybe a couple of days from now or maybe a week from now, uh, we'll let uh, Dr. Goldberg uh, give you all the information about JPSS1, some websites to follow, maybe a Twitter account to follow. That way you can be up to date and kind of follow uh, along the process as we uh, get this new satellite launched and uh, ready to uh, work for us. So that is the uh, housekeeping rules. We'll quickly go around the uh, panel here to kind of discuss what's been going on in the uh, southeast throughout the past week. Uh, no major storm systems. It's just kind of been chilly, and that's uh, chill's been felt everywhere. So we'll start with our far western friend, Mr. Eric, who is in Memphis, Tennessee tonight. Eric, you too have been feeling the big chill, right? Yeah, it finally cooled down here. We uh, were a degree off a record high last Thursday uh, at 82. Today, we sat at 50, 51 degrees under overcast skies all day. Uh, and the big news over here in Memphis is that um, tomorrow we're going to see the sunshine. Uh, it's been nine days since we've had a full day of sun. And so uh, I did go ahead and issue on the uh, behalf of uh, the Memphis area a bright orb warning for tomorrow. Uh, everyone needs to take precautions. Uh, make sure you've got your sunglasses, your sunroofs, and uh, carry your pleasant disposition for tomorrow. Uh, looks like we're going to see sunshine all day, and we're definitely looking forward to that. Maybe you can have lunch outside because you've not been able to do that the past couple of days, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, Eric, thank you for that report from Memphis. Let's go to uh, the sunny coast, but it's not really sunny today. Let's go to Charleston, South Carolina. Jared, you two have been in the cold muck, right? Yep, no, we, are, uh, we are firmly entrenched within the wedge. We set our rec we set our high temperature at 8:50 this morning of 67 degrees, and it's only been downhill from there. Nice, and now we've got a little bit of cold rain mixing in. My favorite, uh, said nobody ever. Um, <clears throat> yesterday we too were one degree off of a record high. It got to 83. Record was 84. Uh, we stay chilly over the next few days. A um, little more rain tomorrow. Peaks of sun occasionally, but uh, the uh, cold air dam is going to hold up quite nicely for us. Um, but on the plus side, it does feel like fall, so there is there's some there's something to that. So back to you, Scotty. All right, Jared, thank you for that report. It is um, cold and clammy as well here in the western part of North Carolina. Uh, we've been anywhere between 44 and 46 today. It's not really budged. Uh, with uh, drizzle and, and light rain, and we're going to expect more light rain and drizzle tonight into tomorrow. So the wedge game is fully on here in the uh, southeast. So, Shay, I guess I won't let you talk about the wedge because we still have tropics to talk about. It's hard to believe we're rounding the end of this year's tropical season, and it just seems like it will not end. So, Shay, what's the latest on our newest tropical storm? Yep, we have our 17th named storm of the year. It is November the 8th. So I remind everybody that our hurricane season does not end in the Atlantic Basin until November the 30th. So we uh, have to be mindful that there's still warm water out there. There's still potential for tropical cyclones to develop. And our latest one is Rena. I'm going to go ahead and share the screen here. Let me know when you can see. Yep, we got it. You got it. Okay, good. So Rena, uh, very high up in latitude, uh, winds at 50 miles per hour, pressure at 995 millibars. This is estimated using Dvorak technique. Uh, this is the highest latitude storm since Noel in 2001. So this is not a very common thing, actually, but kind of a rarity to have a storm this high up in latitude. 
Uh, if we look at its forward track, it looks like it's going to head uh, off to the east-northeast towards the Norwegian Sea, north of Europe, uh, in time. Uh, it does st stay S as its description in the forecast track, but uh, this is really going to become more of an extratropical cyclone here in the next day or two as it moves over cooler waters. These water temperatures really fall off once you get north of 40 degrees north. So uh, pretty impressive little storm. I mean, it's holding together pretty well. You can see here uh, just in the early frames where it's still holding tropical characteristics, but then you get this comma shape to it as it heads off to the north in this final satellite images, and you can see where that cool air is starting to wrap into the center. There's still a little, bit of, a little blob of convection on the north and northwestern quadrant, uh, but it will be moving over cooler water, so it will take on extra tropical characteristics and uh, slowly fizzle out. So that's uh, that's all we have right now for the tropics. I think uh, you know the the main thing here is to remember that we've had a, a hyperactive season this year. We've had a lot of damaging storms. We're on the back end. It looks like things are starting to taper off. Uh, but we can't we can't close our eyes just yet. And even beyond November the 30th, uh, we have seen storms form here and there. So we still got to watch the tropics pretty much year round as uh, we end this really active season for 2017. Uh, for the Pacific, we're still in La Nina watch, and we'll continue to watch that. Looks like it may not hit La Nina until maybe late winter uh, or a full La Nina. But we'll see what happens. I think some of the European model was. Uh, way off on that and some of its uh, forecast predictions a few months ago. So anything could happen between now and then. We're just watching the, the Pacific waters to see what kind of pattern we're going to get in the southeast for the winter. Back to you, Scotty. All right. Thank you, Shay, for that. And I'll toss it over to James Briarton. I will say Ricky Matthews is off tonight. He was called in to do a little bit of work. So James is going to be handling our interview tonight, James. So um, I'll give it off to you. We'll start the uh, the show tonight. Ricky is off, which really is just code for Ricky got called into his full-time paying job. So, uh, Ricky, uh, sorry you're not here tonight, but he has passed off uh, some questions for us uh, that we'll be asking along with your questions at home, too. So, like uh, Scotty said off the top of the show, be sure to comment with those no matter what platform you're watching on. Uh, briefly, I will share. Uh, here in Charlotte, North Carolina today, it was gross, uh, cold and damp, and uh, just in case I needed any reminder of that, uh, my watch decided that it was not going to even update the temperature today. So it has just been reading 46 on my wrist all day long in case I needed any encouragement to remind me just how cold it was. I think we, we probably were uh, slightly above that. I think that is a, a morning temperature. So uh, as Scotty mentioned, we have a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about uh, one of the new satellites that will be going up into space, hopefully in a not too distant future, to help with our, uh, our weather forecasting capabilities. And our guest for tonight is Dr. Mitch Goldberg. Uh, he is the program scientist on this JPSS satellite, the Joint Polar Satellite System, uh, if I have my abbreviation. Uh, correct there, Dr. Goldberg. How are you this evening? Very good, thank you. Yeah, that's correct. It's a joint polar satellite system. So, so what does that mean in, in layman's terms? I guess if if uh, if you were to go into a fourth grade classroom, how would you how would you explain that? Well, I would describe first uh, two different satellites. So, one is the you know geostationary satellite that we're all familiar with um, because you see that on uh, on TV all the time. So that satellite is about 22,300 miles above the equator, and it is moving at the same speed as the Earth is moving. So it looks like it's always staying in one spot, and it's always scanning this our part of the world and showing real-time um, imagery, imagery of um, clouds and things like that. Um, the polar satellite is different. It's in a lower orbit. It orbits about 512 miles above the Earth, and um, and while it's orbiting from pole to pole, the Earth is moving underneath it. And so we get global observations. And these global observations are critical for weather forecast models. So when you see a forecast out to seven days, which is very common now, um, the confidence in the seven-day forecast comes from a variety of information. But one of the critical data sets that go into the seven-day forecast, or the three to seven-day forecast, is from polar orbiting satellite data. So this satellite, uh, unlike the traditional ones that, uh, that Shay was showing us a moment ago when we we're looking at the tropics, and that kind of just is parked over the, the system or the storm, this one is almost doing somersaults essentially over the planet. Is, is that kind of an accurate way to, uh, to, to visualize that? Yeah, it's moving. You can imagine the you know, satellite you know, always in the same constant orbit, just flying from South Pole to North Pole and keep on orbiting. And while it's orbiting, uh, the Earth is moving underneath it, so it scans the entire planet. So... So, for example, most of our viewers. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
No, no, I was just going to say, so you can imagine um, you can have, uh, you know, a, you know, a, a typhoon off the off of Japan, for example, and that typhoon is going to eventually most, most uh, you know, good chance of effect, affecting weather, um, um, let's say in California or Alaska. Uh, and so you need to get these global observations. So, so that's really the main uh, contribution of polar orbiting satellites is that it sees the entire planet. So whether that's happening thousands and thousands of miles away will eventually potentially impact our weather. And all that data go into, goes, they, it goes into weather forecast models in order to give us really good uh, forecasts. And, and I understand it, it has several instruments on, on board, and I should note why we why I tee up that question that most of our viewers right now uh, joining us online are, are looking at some uh, computer-generated renderings of this satellite uh, that, that NOAA has provided. Uh, and we can see all sorts of things from, from solar panels to little satellite arms, but, but on board there are a number of tool sets, I imagine, that are, that are mission critical to, to this operation. Can you introduce us to some of those? Sure. Um, so we have five different instruments. and. Um, and the critical data that goes into forecast models, um, they actually include atmospheric um, temperature and water vapor information. So, so we have two instruments. Um, one is a microwave sounder. And I should start by saying that, you know, the Earth is constantly emitting energy. And so we observe that energy in different wavelengths. And in the microwave, we get to see through clouds because the size of the wavelength uh, is large compared to the size of water droplets. So we can see through clouds, and we can, can capture atmospheric temperature and water vapor. Um, but it's also in, impacted by um, large water droplets. So when it's raining, we can actually see where it's raining. So it's very similar to radar. Uh, weather radar uh, doesn't exist over the ocean. So we can get precipitation estimates over the ocean from microwave observations. And it's also impacted by um, you know, you know, snow cover and sea ice. So because it's a polar orbiting satellite, we see a lot of information, a lot of, we cover a lot of real estate over the, over the polar region. And so we can monitor, for example, the sea ice cap and how the sea ice is changing. And so there's a lot of applications with the microwave. Then we have an infrared sounder. It has, um, basically, it sees more vertical information of atmospheric temperature and water vapor. So we can see, um, it has high vertical resolution, so we see more information in the, in the atmosphere. And, but it's impacted by clouds, and that's why you need the microwave. So the microwave and infrared sounders, they work in tandem, and they, they're providing the, really the critical weather, well, the critical information that feeds the weather forecast models. Um, this third instrument we have is an imager. It's called VIRS, and that really is our environmental, what we call environmental intelligence. So it's looking for features. And so uh, we have a, uh, a sensor a channel that is very sensitive to fires, very small fires. So we can detect very small fires before they become larger. And, um, and we've been using our uh, fire product, which, which not only gives us the location of the fire, but it also gives us how hot the fire is. And that information has been going into this um, model called the HER model, high resolution rapid um, refresh. And that's been used over the last couple of years um, for, um, for predicting um, the forecasting smoke plumes and things like that. We've been using the imager also for a lot of, a lot of other applications like uh, flood mapping. So after the, after the Harvey, big Harvey, um, Hurricane Harvey, when we had a lot of flooding in Texas and also in Florida from Irma, we were able to map uh, where the flooding uh, uh, was occurring. And we actually gave that data to FEMA and FEMA then used that data to uh, bring in other assets to take a closer look. Um, and we also can look at the ocean color, which is correlated to water quality. And so we can look at harmful algal blooms along the coastline. We can determine areas where there's large sea surface temperature gradients and also uh, large areas of ocean nutrients. And that's very important for stock assessments and fishing. Um, and so it does a lot. Uh, we have an instrument that does a lot. We, um, I'm seeing an image that you're bringing up. Um, we have a unique uh, sensor on or channel on beers uh, called the day-night band. And we can see, um, basically, it's like having a visible channel that works at night. And so we can see clouds at night. We can see cities at night. 
this channel was very important for a number of applications, but more recently, it was used to show where the power outages were over uh, Florida and also um, um, over Puerto Rico. And so there's a lot of applications. And then that's just three of the instruments, right? The fourth one is an ozone sounder. I know there's a lot. Uh, so we have to monitor um, ozone. Uh, stratospheric ozone is very important for a lot of applications uh, for radiative uh, information that goes into our forecast models. It's also used to monitor the ozone hole, um, and it's also used for the input for the UV index. So when you give your five-day, seven-day forecast, or the next-day forecast, I should say, when you give your forecast, like it's going to be sunny tomorrow, the UV index is 8. That information is coming from our ozone sounder. And then finally, we have a, a, an instrument called Ceres that um, gives us information about Earth's energy budget. And that's our lineup. It's like having a baseball team with five key players. It's very powerful. You don't, we don't need nine players. We only need five because our <laughs> instrument is very powerful. Really glad you really walked us through that. You're right. It's, it is, it is, it is a number of things. I think we're getting some echo at the moment, but I'm going to continue to talk through it. But I, I'm glad you described it as opposed to me reading it off because, of course, you are the expert on this. Um, and, and you mentioned, and I'm just reiterating for some of our viewers at home, that, that satellites allow us to see so much more than, than what ground-based radar can see. Ground-based radar, of course, is, is a valuable tool, but it has kind of a limited visibility. And, and it's almost like we're, we're getting the high ground here on, on the storms and the weather, if I understand it correctly. Uh, and I'm wondering... Uh, if you can tell us, uh, are, are any anything in in the in, in the orbit right now? Any other satellites out there uh, performing similar tasks, or, or or is this some really brand new spanking things that are going to be going up here pretty soon? No, it's um, so we have a, a satellite that was launched back in 2011 called Sumian PP, and JPSS one, which becomes NOAA twenty, um, is very similar to Sumian PP. There are some differences, uh, but Sumian PP was our research mission. It was intended to be like a, um, a pathway um, from NOAA operations of our older satellites called the POST series to JPSS-1. And so that was sort of our transition point. But it has operated so well that we actually made it operational. So SUMI MPP, right now, this moment, it's our primary operation weather satellite from polar, from polar orbit. Next week, we'll have JPSS-1. Uh, in 90 days after the launch of JPSS-1, it will be checked out, and the data will start flowing to uh, like National Weather Service. And then JPSS will become our primary um, satellite. And so we'll have two satellites in orbit, and that's always been the plan, to have two satellites in the same orbit for backup. And it actually, each orbit is about 101 minutes, and so they're separated by 50 minutes. So we'll have twice the amount of data going to models, and also the JPSS ground segment is a little bit different, um, and it, it brings in the data twice as fast as from SUMI MPP. Now, I had a, a question for you concerning the sea surface temperatures. You were talking about the algal blooms and some yeah. of the other MODIS uh, imaging that we get. Uh, I know that uh, the NOAA 14 and 18s, I think that they had a tough time getting through cloud cover to get sea surface temperatures. So uh, at, a, at a higher resolution, is this going to resolve those issues? And, and if so, how would it get sea surface temperatures through clouding from space? Well, sea surface temperature, so we have um, a couple ways. So as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, we actually in NOAA, we generate a blended, SS, a blended sea surface temperature. And so we take information from various sources. So the best spatial resolution, you know, to looking at the sharp gradients will come from, um, from VIRS. It has like 375 meter resolution. So that's important. But you're right. What do you do about clouds? Well, we use a geostationary satellite. The geostationary also can do SST. It's at a coarser resolution, two kilometers, but that's okay because at least uh, clouds are moving during the day, right? And so you can do compositing and then you get some information. But sometimes you still have persistent clouds. And so uh, one of our partners, we have a partnership with Japan, um, JAXA. Um, they have something called AMSTER2 on GCOMW. Um, and, they, um, and they have a microwave um, sensor that can derive sea surface temperature, but it's at a coarser resolution, it's about 10 kilometers. So we blend all that information together and we come up with one product. And that's how we, so if you go to the NOAA website and you're looking for sea surface temperature, you'll say, hey, wait a minute, there's no clouds. How are you doing this? So that's why we do that by using different satellites to solve the problem. 
That's fascinating. I, I love Sport SST. NASA Sport SST is a pretty good one blending there. So. Oh yeah, they're they're doing a lot of work. And of course, you mentioned MODIS, and uh, and MODIS has been is a great instrument, but there's no follow-on to MODIS. So VIRS is basically our nation's um, you can call it our operational satellite or you know sensor or JPSS that will guarantee to have these measurements for the next uh, 20 plus years. So JPS is a series of satellites. Uh, JPS 1, 2, 3, 4, and they're launched about every five or five years, and each one has a seven-year life. So you're not taking any risk. You're reducing the risk of having a gap by making sure that you're launching satellites every five years, basically. And that is a perfect lead into my next question, Dr. Goldberg. Uh, I know these things take some time to put together, and you're looking to launch this now next week. When did planning start for JPSS-1? Well, um, it's uh, we started planning in the 1990s, late 1990s, because it actually takes uh, about 50, at least 15 good years to uh, build a satellite system. And that's because uh, you got to get everything right. Um, you got to get the user requirements right. So you have to find out exactly what's needed because you're developing a system that's going to be used 15 years later. So you really have to have a window into the future of what type of services are needed, what type of spatial resolution, things like that. So we work hard on that, working with our customers and you know asking them questions, getting feedback. So we put that together. Then you have to do some prototyping, like you know what technology will work, what doesn't work. And so you keep on doing that. And then you'd say, okay, now you're going to start building uh, mass production because you're not just going to build one, you're going to build more than one, uh, you know, two, three, four of these units. And that takes a long time because it takes a long time because you have to have everything right. There's no service station in space, right? You know, a satellite is there for like seven years, at least in terms of design life, and you got to get everything right, and that's why it takes us a long time. So this program actually started um, – a while ago under something called NPOSE, and it was a program that um, that was modified later um, and was called JPSS uh, that was focused on uh, NOAA user requirements. So we've been working on this for a while. Uh, SUMI MPP was our bridge into the future, bridge mission, and so JPSS 1 uh, will be launched next week, but it does take that long, and it's very, it's comparable to other missions, like for example, GOZAR, uh, or Go 16 now, which was launched, launched last year. That planning took about that planning started about 2002, 2003. So that's also another 15 years. So it takes a long time because you got to get everything right, and you just can't take chances. Uh, that is just absolutely amazing. I just did some quick Googling uh, for a little comparison to bring us back to 2002. Uh, that is the year that Firefly debuted on television and The Wire and Monk and CSI Miami. So if you're watching tonight trying to remember how long ago 2002 was, that's how long you guys have been working on this. Uh, how, how, how do you try to predict the future i mean when you think about 2002 even just consumer technology has come a long way and i imagine there must be points in your project where you go back and you say well now we have this new thing how can we update our plans for the satellite yeah well you have to really think about what type of data is needed so you pretty much know the spatial resolution models you know information like i still need to uh, provide observations of atmospheric temperature and water vapor and so there are limiting factors uh, a lot of times it's the spatial resolution and uh, yeah, most of the time it's the spatial resolution and the signal to noise. So we get it, you know, we get to the point where we almost can predict how the models will evolve. And, um, and what we've done is we built a really uh, flexible ground segment, ground system that allows us to um, almost control the latency. You know, it takes time to get the data, to process the data from the satellite to the ground. And we actually came up with a nice design that, as, as in the future, let's say 10 years from now, uh, weather models, instead of you know, waiting, let's say, plus or minus um, you know, two hours to collect the data, they, let's say they change it to uh, plus or minus uh, you know, 20 minutes. We can actually uh, uh, modify the latency on the ground segment to bring down the data faster. So, so, um, you know, so again, it's pretty advanced technology. Um, you know, and uh, and we try to um, basically predict, you know, the what how the spatial resolution is going to evolve over time, and and you know, and and it turns out to be pretty good. Um, you know, we have, for example, the NASA Airs satellite, NASA Aqua. 
you know, you're familiar with NASA Aquamotus is something called NASA Airs, the atmospheric infrared sounder. That was launched in 2002. That was probably designed in um, the 1990s, but that's still a hyperspectral infrared sounder. So it still can get high vertical resolution in the atmosphere, and that still has really big impacts on weather forecasting. So there are fundamental measurements that just have a long staying power. And, um, and so we're going to be very relevant even for the next 20 years. Um, so, um, yeah, I have confidence in that. I think Scotty uh, from our panel has a group, so I will toss the mic over to him. Yeah, we had, uh, mute, yeah, we had posted this into several groups about our show tonight. Now, one of our viewers uh, sent a question to me, uh, Bill Ballantyne. Uh, he was wanting to know if you could go into a little bit more detail how this will help us with our weather forecasting, especially uh, the daily model runs that, that us meteorologists look at uh, day in and day out. How will this uh, satellite help us uh, get um, maybe even better data in to help forecast? Well, if you look at the history, so if um, it would be great if you could bring up a chart of like how uh, the forecast has improved over time. ECMWF, the European models, uh, I mean, you know, ECMWF, which is a European uh, center for medium range, uh, medium range weather forecasting, they have a nice chart on that. But the weather forecasts have really improved over time considerably. I mean, uh, back in 2000, the accuracy of the three-day forecast has been, in the last 15 years, has been extended um, to the five-day forecast. I mean, I don't think back in 2000, um, did you show seven-day forecasts? Uh, probably not. Uh, and the big changing point, that uh, the game changer back then, was the first advanced microwave sounder on our post satellites in 1998. And then we had the hyperspectral infrared sounder, um, you know, called AIRS. And then later on, the Europeans had their own um, hyperspectral infrared sounder. And then suddenly we had more satellites with our NOAA series, European series, NASA series. And when you look at you know, why this uh, forecast improved significantly over time was a combination of models got better, but it was also the satellite data got better. And, and so when people, you know, did studies like which data types impact the weather the most, it was always the microwave infrared sounders uh, because they're giving you the best information in terms of, of coverage as well as vertical information. And so we know that. And so what we're doing is a couple things. So we're maintaining, we're guaranteeing that we have those type of observations for the next um, 20 years and more. And so our older POSE operational weather satellites uh, did not have a hyperspectral infrared sounder. It had a microwave sounder, which was pretty good, but this microwave sounder that we have on JPSS is even a lot better. It has better uh, geographic coverage. There's no gaps between the orbits. So we know, we have confidence that this data will continue to improve the weather forecast and also, uh, when you look at the weather forecast models, because there are limitations of computer time and things like that, um, you know, not all the information is being used right now in the model. Uh, and so, when uh, computer power gets strong, you know, more powerful and we can crunch more numbers, uh, more of our data will actually be used more effectively. So, um, so this is why we know. We know it's going to improve the forecast or continue to improve the forecast because the accuracy of the, in, in the incredible improvement in the forecast over the last 17 years was the result of the type of data that JPSS will be providing well into the future as part of an operational mission with a very high reliability. Shay, I think, has a question as well, so let's go down to Charleston and, and, and toss the mic over to Shay. Yes, I wanted to ask, uh, the, one of the fascinating features that uh, that is on this satellite. One thing I'll be watching for sure is the ozone. Uh, mm -hmm. So tell us, talk a little bit about the ozone science behind the satellite. What, what should we expect from this particular uh, orbit from this one? I think it's satellite number four, you said? Um, satellite, you mean JPS is one? Uh, yeah. Um, so JPS one and SUMI MPP and other um, um, polar satellites, um, it basically, um, uh, we use the UV, so we measure um, outgoing radiation in the UV. UV absorbs ozone, and so we, we look at the UV, and that gives us basically what the concentration of ozone is. And so that's how that works. And so we get very good information on, on ozone as a function of altitude, and so we can look at things like the ozone hole. So you've probably seen charts of the ozone hole over time, and there's a whole series um, 
There's instruments from um, OMI that qualifies um, on a NASA satellite, and, and even SPUV, which is on a NOAA satellite of Pose. Um, there's a whole series, a, a record that goes back to the 1970s, and we can see how the ozone hole actually got larger, and now it's getting a little bit smaller because it's recovered. And so, um, and that's really, that's really important. And it's not just measuring ozone. Ozone is also, the UV is very sensitive to aerosols and SO2. So we can monitor volcanic eruptions very clearly. The signal of the ash from a cloud is clearly separated from normal clouds. So it just highlights the ash and also SO2. So there's a lot of applications. And also, you can actually see um, um, power plant emissions of NOxes. So we can actually uh, monitor air quality with uh, our ozone sounder as well. So it sounds to me, uh, Dr. Goldberg, like this satellite can really, really see down to uh, the local level uh, if, it, if it is seeing things like emission from a power plant. You mentioned fires before, too. Is, is there kind of an emergency first response use to this as well, too, where if you spot, a say, a forest fire that no one's aware of yet, you know, the Forest Service might get a call? Yeah, yeah, actually. So we have services within NOAA that um, looks at the data, interrogates the data, and actually sends out bulletins that, you know, for early detection of fires. And remember, these are global uh, measurements, so we're always getting mess. You know, there's something called the International Charter for Disasters, and so there could be a flooding event and a uh, and a volcanic uh, alert, and so we'll get those messages and we'll send out reports to the international community as well. That is that is quite fascinating. Let's go over to Memphis, Tennessee. Our own panelist Eric has a question for you. All right, thanks a lot. Uh, very interesting stuff, Dr. Goldberg. So um, I I have a um, uh, a keen interest in the aviation side as well and in uh, technology that can assist in, in forecasting for aviation purposes. So obviously volcanic ash is a, is a significant uh, hazard and this sounds like this would, um, would definitely assist in that area. Are there other specific um, applications um, that JPSS will provide specifically to the aviation community that can help in forecasting or at least monitoring current trends and so forth? Yeah, there's actually um, there's something called cold air loft and so when you have high flying planes, like a lot of you know planes going to Asia, for example, they all fly over Alaska uh, at high altitudes. And you can actually fly into a cold pocket. Um, and, and what happens if it gets too cold, I think it's like less than uh, minus 65 degrees centigrade, the fuel, um, jet fuel will start to gel. Right. And so that actually, that information is being provided too. That, that turned out to be very valuable information. Um, for forecasters, especially up in um, Alaska, and um, and you know, for other aviation like um, you know clouds and dust and volcanic eruptions, you know, again, it's an integrated um, type of information that we provide. So we'll blend, we'll integrate geostationary and uh, polar data. So geostationary uh, is very good. You know, it constantly sees our part of the world, and there's other geostationary satellites. And so that will provide that information. But then when you get into higher altitudes, spatial resolution of the geostationary degrades. So in the northern latitudes where there's a lot of aviation in the northern latitudes, uh, that's where JPSS will provide uh, critical information. Volcanic eruptions, ash, um, and, and other, other, you know, visibility, poor visibility due, due to smoke. You can have a fire out in Siberia impacting visibility over our part of the world. So that's why the global nature of JPSS is really important. So I'll follow up on that, um, the, the global nature of that again. Um, since it is obviously a U.S. satellite, we're using the data here, but it's got global coverage. Is there, uh, are there other agencies, med agencies around the world and so forth that are uh, either, either contracted to, uh, to be able to use the data or that you know of that are using it for applications uh, elsewhere? Oh, everyone. So every, every country that has a, a weather service uh, Europeans, um, you know, Japanese, Korea, Australia, they all use our data. Uh, our data, uh, back in, you know, the history of polar satellites, it wasn't until 2005 when the Europeans had their own. So the U.S. always led the area of weather satellites from the very beginning, especially, and, uh, and so we always made sure our data was open and free, and so it's very easy to get our data. If you're a power user, uh, they just subscribe to it and they get it in real time. If you're a researcher, you can go to our archive and get the data. If you're really interested in data, uh, data in real time and you're a regional user, you 
can buy your own satellite dish, and the data is transmitted constantly uh, every time anywhere it flies. So we make sure that uh, that we provide the data with very easy access. And at the same time, the Europeans, uh, which I mentioned, also have their own polar satellites. It was launched back in 2005, and um, and we get that data free as well. And actually, the JP there's something called JPS. It's a Joint Polar Satellite Agreement, and we have a, and part of JPS include JPS um, NOAA, you can call it, and that's what we also call JPSS, but there's also JPS Europe, and the Europeans basically fly the uh, mid-morning. Um, they So we orbit around 1.30 in the afternoon, so the satellite passes anywhere in the globe uh, at the equator about 1.30 in the afternoon and 1.30 at night on the other side. And so over the U.S., we get a pass around um, about one about 1.45 in the afternoon. Um, locally, uh, 2.45 during the summer because of daylight saving time. And the Europeans, they fly uh, satellite 9.30 in the morning. And so so we use both um, uh, data sets. And so both of our agencies, European agencies, U.S. agencies, and also international agencies, we all use uh, weather satellites, and they're all open and free and available to, the, to anyone. That is uh, some fabulous uh, data sharing uh, that is available to, to scientists and, and the rest of us as well, too. And, and I know the next uh, big milestone for you, Dr. Goldberg, is going to be getting this thing up into orbit. I understand there was a delay in the launch earlier in the week uh, due to the uh, a faulty battery. And you have another launch window coming up. Uh, what, is, what is that launch window that we should all be watching for? Well, that's going to be November 14th. Uh, 1.47 in the morning Pacific time. So people on the East Coast, wake up at uh, 4.47. And, or no, before that, you don't want to miss it. Uh, so wake up around 4.30 if you're on the East Coast and, uh, and turn on NASA TV. Uh, you know, and also you can get more information on our uh, uh, NOAA um, satellites. Um, we have a Twitter feed. At NOAA satellites. Uh, fabulous. At NOAA satellites. And we have a JPS website, which I see you have um, on the screen now. And it gives you all this information. James, I've got a quick kind of question from one of our, sure. our viewers, kind of in this topic. Uh, uh, Dr. Goldberg, uh, this is from Jill. She's uh, watching uh, tonight. And mm -hmm. she wanted to know, you know, you've put so much preparation into this. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, is, are you nervous about anything? Uh, just what are your thoughts going into into this week of launch? I mean, what, what are what are your expectations? What are I mean, obviously we want a, a, a perfect launch, but but you know, any any nervous or anything nervous or how how are your feelings going into this week? Well, you always get butterflies, little flutters, you know, when you're launching a a, a new satellite, you want it to be successful. So I'm always optimistic. So I'm planning for success, and so. So we're going to get out there, and that rocket's going to take off, and, and uh, knock on wood, it's going to be successful launch. And, and, uh, and we're excited because we're really ready for this because SUMI MPP, which, again, is our mid-bridge mission, has been so successful. Um, all the instruments are working well. It has provided great value. You know, I, I gave certain examples of how we've been using it for fire detection already and, and flood mapping and and the, both the sounders, the ATMS and the CRIS, has been having huge impacts in weather forecasting. And so we expect to see the same. And now we're going to have twice the amount of data, better coverage. And so, so I'm really excited. I'm really excited, and I'm, um, I, I expect success. I anticipate a successful mission. You don't want to say too much because you don't want to, like, like you, know, just, you know, knock on wood, right? We're all uh, superstitious, right? That's right. We're, we know everything uh, is going to go great, and we, we can't yeah, yeah. wait to see the data. Yeah, so we're excited. It's been a long time, and and again, this is our first uh, operational class mission. SUMI PP again was our research mission, uh, and this one is more um, rigorous and um, has a seven-year design life. So we we can't wait for this to happen, and and again, we'll have two satellites in orbit and uh, twice the amount of data and things like that. That's going to be fantastic. Uh, I, so you mentioned. Uh, sorry, James, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, Shay. Oh, okay, I was just going to ask, you mentioned earlier in the show about it being roughly 90 days, so I, I guess I wanted to kind of circle back to that and mm -hmm. ask um, the data that's going to start coming in, uh, is it going to be 90 days, maybe a little bit before, and is that going to be preliminary 
non-operational data sort of like goes is going through right now or in, in yeah, yeah so we have to test the data out so everything is tested and reviewed and and so um so we expect that you know be, before um you know within the 90 days of course we're going to see data for the first time uh they won't be publicly released because we have to verify uh validate the data and then um we hope that l plus 90 um will be um, distributing the data to weather service and they'll be providing feedback and then hopefully we'll declare it operational uh, but we don't declare anything operational until everything has been verified so it takes a little bit of time but it's worth it because you don't want to send you know bad data um, to the public because there's always these lookup tables things like that you know nerdy things that you have to make sure that you, you know, that all the data sets are properly characterized so there's a lot of um, work that we have to do our uh, fellow panelist uh, Ricky Matthews who's not with us tonight is a, is a broadcast met uh, and I think he is is hoping and I'm not sure if you're able to shine light on this but it, but is this data that, that maybe one day we'll be seeing on local television fed through to the local uh, meteorologist there so that they can share with the public that way as well yeah sure I mean we have great imagery so there's certain events that uh, you would like to um, see so where uh, we hope the data is available I mean we have images that we can provide through our um, websites. I think one of the products that you really like, because um, I know you're you're used to looking at like you know uh, water vapor imagery from geostationary, and one of the key products that we have uh, for forecasters is um, uh, total precipital water from the microwave. And you probably have looked at uh, blended total precipital water right from microwave, and of course you can see through clouds, so it doesn't. So sometimes, for example, if you look at a geostationary water vapor loop, you'll see water vapor at an upper level, uh, but in the lower level, water vapor will be coming from a different direction. Uh, but you can't; it's hard to see that in the infrared. But the microwave, you'll be able to see that. So I hope that um, somehow, um, you know, the weather vendors will provide microwave imagery as routine because I think you'll find that very valuable. Uh, like for Hurricane Irma, yeah, it was Irma. Uh, you could see the fetch of moisture all the way from like Panama, just not being, you know, disguised or covered. Oh, here you go. You're looking at something there. Yes, the morph composite. Uh, very nice. <laughs> so uh, perfect timing. You set me up. I mean, you're, uh, uh, so you can see the plumes of moisture. And for uh, Irma, you could see, we could see a plume of, moisture coming all the way from Panama and it looked like it was actually jumping over Panama from uh, the Pacific and it fed right into um, the storm when Miami was getting all that heavy rain um, I could see that plume all the way um, into Irma and 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 that's what the microwave really offers you you're going to be able to see moisture plumes and also we can do at different levels too what you're looking at is that total precipitate water, but we can look at low level, mid level, upper level, and I think that you're going to find that very valuable. And this is our old product. We have a new one that actually uh, the plumes continue over land, so you don't have that uh, ocean only viewpoint. We actually have a nice product over land. Actually, if you Google, you know, if you, this is all live, right? So if you go on the internet and you type in Sims TPW2 Mimic, TPW2 Mimic, You'll see great imagery of uh, of, um, of microwave um, TPW um, over ocean and land. So it's called TPW2 Mimic, and if you Google that, you'll find it right away. I, I see Shay's fingers immediately going and typing there. Yeah, so I'm pulling it up. I mean, that, that's something right. I use for the truck that, that uh, year-round, right there. That's a great product. Uh, this one just yeah. became operational over land. I think last year. Uh, they yeah, I, I see it. I see it there. There you go. Now, this is the value of G, uh, polar satellite. So what it's doing is uh, it's taking data from multiple orbits. So it's not just, uh, you know, um, let's say the early afternoon orbit. It's taking data from the U.S. satellites and the European satellites. And we get all that, all that data um, as fast as our data. So we have this agreement. So we just get that data. And then we're morphing that with the forecast. So the forecast is pretty good and uh, predicting, you know, wind, wind advection, and moisture travels really nicely with the wind, so we're morphing that, and then we get a, uh, an image like that that's updated every hour. It's a blended product of polar satellites, microwave, total precipital water, uh, along with the forecast to get that fluid uh, motion. 
And I think that's your go-to. I mean, if you only could pick one product that you would show every day on TV, <laughs> this would be the one. You could see, look at that um, that atmospheric river cur curving and hitting like California. Uh, it's just an incredible, and you can see the waves. And there was a nice, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago when you, we had that big typhoon um, off of Japan, you can see that moisture plume going all the way across the Pacific hitting um, California. Or yeah, Seattle, that's ex Washington. Exactly right. Yeah, we. Yeah. I love this product because it, um, it it definitely shows you the teleconnection from exactly. the Western Pacific all the way across the North Pacific jet and all the yeah. way to the United States, and you can you can watch that energy transfer from one side of the world to the other. It's beautiful. So that's thing. a nice example of polar uh, polar satellites, and then you know polar. I mean imagery. So and also you're going to have episodic events. So like for example, if there's a power outage, you're going to want to show. Power, you know, images from our satellite showing where the lights are out, or even if you have a, a like a major drought, for example, we have a product called Vegetation Health. It actually shows the health of the vegetation, and it's colored so that if it's really red, that means the vegetation is really stressful. And so, uh, and I'm sure I heard earlier that you got a lot of rain in the southeast, so that ve vegetation uh, is very vibrant. So you can actually see on a global scale the health of vegetation, and every now and then. Uh, you know, if you have a news story about, you know, showing, you know, the health of the vegetation and the drought, you'll want to go to the polar satellite data and show images from that. Um, also, if you're showing interest stories about, let's say, the Northwest Passage and showing where if the Northwest Passage is clear of ice, clear of ice or not, um, you would basically uh, maybe do a feature um, on that. Um, and also small fires, you know, we can detect fires at night just by the light of the fires. So if there's a big fire, um, um, you know, situation like the Napa Valley, you didn't show that on TV, did you? No, <laughs> but Napa Valley, you could see the Napa Valley with the lights uh, from the, um, you know, you could see the city lights, and then you could see all these big lights uh, just coming from fires. That would have been impressive to show on TV. So yes, there's a place for polar satellite data on your weather forecasts, uh, but you don't have to show it every day, except for the microwave. But for other things, you want to show it when you have these big episodic events. Yeah, I think University of Wisconsin-Madison does a great show. job at relaying that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I think Eric had a question. Yeah, just one last follow-up. You talked about one of the benefits of having the dual uh, satellites up there once this one uh, gets into orbit. So um, since uh, the Suomi uh, NPP has already kind of passed its, uh, I guess, expected life scale, um, what is the future for that? Is that Are you just going to let that continue to run until it uh, – until it can't run anymore or, or yeah absolutely and so um so we um it has enough fuel to last until the 2020s uh and um and that won't be an issue and so we plan to uh operate sumi mp and jpss 1020 for a while then we're gonna have to have um then we'll have jpss2 and um and so it potentially we'll have three but then we can um, adjust the orbits a little bit so then so they're not lying on top of each other so maybe in the future i can imagine maybe moving sumi mpp in a in a 230 orbit uh that's 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 possible but we'll see you know we we hopefully all these satellites will last for a long time the longer they last um the more data we get and the better temple coverage so we hope for the best but yeah uh, uh sumi mpp if it, uh this high expectation of sumi mpp will keep on working until like 2027 or 2028. Then there'll be a time that, you know, we're trying to minimize space junk. And so in the old days, you can launch satellites and they'll just drift over time and 40 years later, they'll burn up. But during that time, you can have space debris and it could, you know, you get a, like a traffic jam in space. It's not that bad, but uh, you don't need Google Maps up there. But, uh, but so what we do now is that the space policy that says after you have to have enough fuel to safely deorbit the satellite, so there's a so it's not going to let it's not going to be up there until like the 2030s or 40s because we have to safely bring it down. So, wow, never thought there'd be an ordinance for burning up satellites. Well, it has to be. They get too much space junk. Sometimes a satellite, when they get old, can just simply just like like explode, and then you get all these particles. I mean, we have to monitor space debris all the time. Sometimes we have to maneuver the, our satellite. Like we'll, we'll get an emergency, like a, a message saying space debris upcoming, let's say um, tomorrow. And um, because um, um, NASA and the Air Force, they monitor this very closely. 
And so we'll get reports, and then we'll have to uh, maneuver the satellite a bit to make sure we pass away, you know, so we don't go through space debris and get it back. So so space debris is a big issue, and, and so we can't just leave uh, satellites up there forever. We have to bring them down safely after it's um, time. time. That sounds like another show we could have, you know, the space debris and satellites. <laughs> Those things, I mean, you got bolts flying at 25,000 miles an hour. I mean, they're going to put holes through things, and I've seen I've yeah. seen uh, things riddled with holes in it up there in pictures. Wow. Well, we, I mean, just so the movie Gravity, right? Yeah. The, gra- the Gravity movie was interesting. That was uh, a sound that exploded or something like that, and all the space debris, and it knocked out the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> Turns of cops. I was to say it all. It all sounds. It all sounds like a sci-fi thriller. I guess a little yeah, bit it is, but uh, we're thankful for all the people who are keeping an eye on those things, uh, so we can get weather imagery and also keep our satellite televisions working. Yeah, I can tell you one cool thing that you probably uh, that I didn't say tell before. So, so it's um, so we have the various images very sensitive to light, and there's um, a crabbing vessel. I think it was in the dangerous catch uh, on. I think on. What is it, Discovery Channel? Something has, and I forgot the network. Uh, but the uh, vessel called this Kiska Sea, it was actually lost. It knew where it was, but it was stuck in the ice pack. Like, uh, it couldn't figure out where it was to get out. And so, um, so uh, the Coast Guard called the Weather Service and said, hey, can you help us figure this out? And, um, and, the we- and they looked at this, the day-night band that is very sensitive to light, and it could see the light from the ship. We were able to see it. Uh, of course, we had the GPS coordinates, so we knew where to look. But the thing about it is that we could also see the ice at night. And so we were able to say, you know, go straight, make a right, make a left, you know, to get out of the ice pack. So that was really interesting. So that was a good, uh, that you know, that, that was a great uh, event. We were able to help this ship to find its way. Because uh, when you look at the image, you'll see the rest of the crabbing vessel, maybe like 20 boats in this one area, and this one boat, maybe he was trying to get um, better crabs somewhere, but it was just by itself and stuck in the ice. And so that, that's a good story of our, our, our Sally technology can detect lights um, in different parts of the world. That is, wow, that speaking is amazing. Of and, uh, up north, uh, what about the Aurora Borealis? Would it be able to catch that? Oh, absolutely. Well? Just just do a Google search, say Veers. Uh, you know, V-I-I-R-S, uh, um, and, um, um, and, uh, and Google search that, and you'll find images all over the place. It's beautiful imagery. Yeah, and while uh, Shay looks to bring that up, uh, I'm going to um, let our panelists know that in the next few minutes here, as, as we come up to about 9.07 p.m. Eastern time, uh, looking ahead to uh, share everyone's tweet of the week. And Dr. Goldberg, I, I'm, I don't know if, if you have uh, anything you'd like to share, but in a moment, uh, we are going to take a kind of lighthearted tour around the panel and just share uh, some some multimedia that we saw this week. It could be weather-related, science-related. Uh, it, it's just it's just a nice way uh, to, to end our show, or as they like to call it in broadcast, a, a kicker. Uh, so we'll be uh, we'll be doing that uh, in just a second. But before we, we trans- transition over to that, uh, I want to give you a chance again to share any uh, personal uh, Twitter handles or social media handles you might have if, if folks can reach out to you. Or I know you said NOAA Satellites uh, has, has their own Twitter handle. So if anyone is uh, watching or listening to our rebroadcast, how can they learn the program? And I will double load that with uh, your commentary, if I may request it, over the image that Shay has now pulled up as well, too. Yeah, so here you see the lights, and it's clear. So that's very important. It's beautiful, but it's also important for satellite communications, radio communications. And then below that, this is, I guess, uh, uh, the middle of Canada. And then below that, you can see the beautiful city lights. Uh, every town, you can see highways. Uh, you can see the just the features. You can see the low clouds. Uh, you can see areas of fog as well. Um, that's also amazing to look at. But yeah, um, um, we have a, a great instrument that can detect lights. Um, again, we can actually see um, you know, boats uh, in addition and, um, and actually lava in a, in, a, in a volcano we can see from our sensor. That is that is certainly uh, quite impressive. Uh, impressive, and uh, listening to that boat story before, I, I wish I could call them up next time I'm stuck in traffic and ask them for the for the quickest way out. Because, <laughs> <laughs> well, we have different technology for that. Those are called. Uh, 
Google Maps. But anyway, it's uh, yes. uh, or Shay or, or Dr. Goldberg. What type of imagery uh, do we have up, up on the screen here? Image before, so we're looking at a different area. Uh, but yeah, this uh, is uh, this is twelve uh, Z. This is this morning. Um, okay. I've got the the live NPP data from. Uh, Whatever that that because over the Wisconsin broadcast, I think, and I feel like maybe I've got a little bit of aurora action yeah. going on just yeah. in this little slice right here. Yeah, and from last night you can see any ice too, any ice. Um, see yeah. some snowpack there on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and it should render when you zoom in. Yep, yep, it's rendering. Yeah, so that's why uh, uh, you know the most important is the ice applications up there. There's a lot of navigation that takes place. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, another story I could mm -hmm. tell you was, um, you know, there's this Crystal Serenity, I think the name of the ship. You know, they they, um, they go from Anchorage through the Northwest Passage to New York City. And so I was looking at the imagery, and, and last year in 2016, they had no issues. I, you know, I said, you know, I was curious, and I said, let me look at the imagery. Uh, and, you know, we have high resolution, and I said, yeah, no problem. Uh, you know, uh, they shouldn't have an issue at all. Uh, getting through the Northwest Passage. And then this year, I noticed that there was a little bit more ice. And so <clears throat> I called up Weather Service and I said, they've been asking for any information. And they said, nah, they haven't really been communicating with us. I said, okay, fine. And then uh, then after the vessel uh, got to New York, I said, well, I guess they had no problems. Uh, but then I was looking at their log and they have all pictures and logs every day. And the place where I thought they were have problems, they actually had a problem. They said, oh, we had to call in the Indian Coast Guards to break up the ice for us. <laughs> so, so anyway, so, so ice monitoring from polar satellites uh, with a combination of the high spatial resolution imagery that we get from VIRS plus the, the day-night band from VIRS that can see ice at night, uh, that's going to be really important when we have more navigation up near the poles. I'm Looking forward to so much of that, and I, I know you said that the uh, the launch you will have here for uh, JPSS one on uh, November the fourteenth, early in the morning, is, is something that has been in the work for some fifteen years. Yeah. Uh, really looking forward to that, and I can't imagine what you guys have in the work for fifteen more years down the road. Uh, looking forward to all of that, uh, Doctor uh, Mitch Goldberg. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. A, a wealth of information, and and hopefully you'll be able to come back after the launch and after you've got those images uh, publishing out there. We'd love to take a look at them with you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great. I had a great time. Thank you. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you for your time. You're welcome to uh, stick around here as we wrap up tonight's show to do Tweet of the Week. I'll hand things over to uh, Scotty Powell for his tweet, and then I'll uh, allow him to uh, tour us uh, through the Carolina Weather Group panel. All right. Let me uh, get mine loaded right quick. Where is it at? Oh, there it is. All right. Hold on. All right. You guys ready? Can you see mine? What up, Scotty? I'll share it out. You got mine? Can you see it? Yep, we got yeah, you. Yeah, we got All you, right. Scotty. What are we looking at here? So we've been talking about how crazy the tropics has been with hurricanes, but also it's been pretty uh, uh, common with tornadoes as well. This is the fourth highest amount of tornadoes, 119 per, uh, preliminary tornadoes with uh, tropical cyclones this year. Uh, the only other uh, years that has uh, beat 2017 would be 2008. And then the mega years of 2004 and 2005. But again, uh, tornadoes po uh, really piling up with with the tornado uh, with the hurricanes. And as you can see here, uh, the uh, um, Storm Prediction Center uh, has put together this uh, graphic here: Hurricane Irma with 25 tornadoes, Nate with uh, 16, Harvey with 57, and Cindy uh, with 18 uh, tornadoes. So again. Not only has the uh, hurricane season been big uh, stories with the, uh, the storm surge and landfall and hurricanes, but also tornadoes. So again, 119 uh, produced from landfall and tropical cyclones this year in the United States. So that is my tweet of the week. And I will, uh, let's toss it to Jared because he's the one that I see next to me. Jared, have you got your tweet of the week ready? You had my tweet of the week. So um, I'm oh, working on no. that. Oh, no, I stole it. All right, let's go to Eric. Oh. Eric, do you have yours? <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm going on the very light side tonight. We're going to get away from all this weather geeky, nerdy stuff that we've been talking about and go light. Today was, or yes, last night was the uh, inception of the 280-character tweets. 
there was lots of cool stuff that people were posting uh, about what they could get in 280 tweets, but I got to go with my sweet tooth tonight um, to Cookie Monster tweeting. He has 280 cookies spelling out the word <laughs> cookie. There's the best 280 character tweet I've seen. There was a lot of network. I've got a contender for you, Eric. I'm going to go head to head on, on with you on that topic. Let's go. All right, J uh, James, do you have yours ready? I, I do, I do, uh, and it is right on cue for tonight's conversation uh, from from NASA uh, Goddard. Uh, thanks, Twitter. We could always use, and it's got a bunch of emojis. Let me let me pop this back up for you watching on YouTube. Hang on, real fast. Uh, I thought that was that was kind of right on cue for for tonight. I've got too many monitors going here, but I'm going to bring it up for you uh, in just uh, a moment here. Uh, and there and there and there it is. Uh, so you can you can see that as well. Too. Speaking of satellites and to speaking of space, 280 characters this week on Twitter. Look for some longer rants coming from a, us here I've, at Carolina Weather Group. I've never seen those emojis before. You got to get with it, man. All the yeah. hip, cool kids are using these emojis nowadays. I'm gonna have to find those. Pretty must cool. Must be your verified account. That's got to be what it is, right? It has to be. Yeah, <laughs> I've got never... one for Cinnabon too. We got to That's Cinnabon. right. We haven't got our weekly Cinnabon in. So Cinnabon, again, thank you for uh, everything you do for us here at the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, Shay, how about you? Have you? What, what do they do for us here at the Carolina Weather Group? They like our tweets. That's about it. But hey, somebody's getting a paycheck from uh, from Cinnabon. It's, it's news to me. Uh, uh, Shay, I'm sorry. No, no, it's fine. Uh, let's see. My tweet of the week uh, just came in uh, today, actually, and uh, one of the National Weather Service gentlemen posted uh, on his Facebook page, but I figured I'd just go right to the site here for NOAA. Contiguous United States has the third warmest January from, from January, I'm sorry, third warmest year, January to October on record. Uh, and if you, can, you see here the southeast, lots of the southeast here showing record warm temperatures for the year. So it looks like we're going to end up 2017 record warm uh, year for us uh, this coming after last year. So, I mean, we're, we're kind of uh, on that same track. So that's, uh, that's my tweet of the week, just showing the, the warmth, the absolute warmth that we've had this year in the southeast region, parts of Texas, and even parts of the, uh, the west. But, uh, I mean, we felt it here in Charleston. There's no doubt about it, uh, <laughs> just how, how long the heat was here in the Charleston area, at least. I mean, I know that we, we broke records regularly here uh, for – Continuous temperatures above 90 degrees, for instance, was one of them. So See, that, that might be, be a that might be a good stat for you and Jared, and I'll I'll look into it as well. Maybe next week we can talk about how many days above. I mean, 90 degrees is is sometimes typical in the southeast, but 80 degrees really, I, I would say since April through October, we've had a good amount of days above 80 degrees, or maybe even 85. So that that would be probably a good stat. Maybe it blew us away of how many days um, we've had this year. First five right, to seven days in this month of November. Yeah, it was uh, yeah. First five to seven days in this month of November was over eighty. All right, so we're gonna do a self-serving tweet of the week. This is from my own account. I apologize for nothing. Um, <laughs> but this is a good look at uh, this is a good look at the uh, wedge building in on sixteen five-minute imagery preliminary non-operational known to cause cancer in in California. Um, you can see if you, you see a lot of overrunning there, but you can if you if you look real close for South Carolina, you can see that wedge front steadily sinking south with the nice icky stratus. Oh, lots of IFR today for you aviation geeks out there. Um, just a very IFR, just gnarly, nasty, icky fall day. That um, yeah, I'm just. Not a fan of, quite frankly, but the wedge is interesting. So that's my tweet of the week, um, largely self-serving. Back to you, Scotty. Sorry, Jared. I didn't mean to steal your tweet earlier. My bad. <laughs> uh, that's okay. All right. Well, uh, that is uh, all of the tweets of the week. So again, let me pull up the schedule right quick. We'll briefly go over what's coming up here in the next few weeks. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Miss Diane Thomas. She works for the North Carolina Emergency Management. Management. She's a meteorologist for those folks there in Raleigh. She'll be joining us as well as John Hugh from the National uh -oh. 
Yeah, yeah from I, the National... I, I'm so sorry, John Q. <laughs> John Q from uh, the National Weather Service in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, he's going to be uh, joining us as well. We're going to kind of talk about how the states uh, work hand in hand with the National Weather Service, getting ready for uh, big time events, and then how uh, we do during the event and then even after the event. So, uh, interesting show next week. And then after that, we have Jamie Morrow, possibly. I know that Ricky said that uh, he may be in question because he's moving to the Raleigh office. So uh, Jamie may be on with us talking about the National we- NWS Weather Event Simulator. And then as we round out the month of November, I'll let Shay Gibson tell us what uh, we have in store for uh, November 29th. Well, we have Jim Cantori joining us to discuss the 2017 hurricane season. So lots to talk about there. And uh, still got to do a um, just kind of a pre-test check with him. But uh, we're looking forward to having Jim Pantorio on first time for him being on here. We've had other individuals from the, from the uh, Weather Channel come on. Uh, so this will be an exciting first time for us to have uh, a man on. That's right. We're looking forward to Jim. It's been a crazy uh, 2017 hurricane season. And, and Jim, quite frankly, has been out in the middle of all of them. So. Uh, he'll give us uh, the latest and uh, his thoughts and, and as we uh, recap the 2017 Atlantic tropical season. Guys, that's all I have. Anybody else have anything before we log off tonight? I hear silence, so I guess not. Thanks, everyone, for watching tonight, the Carolina Weather Group. Remember to uh, share us with your friends and family and uh, make sure they're uh, following us on our social media accounts or uh, following us on our podcast. Uh, we'll get these podcasts updated, and you can always follow along on our YouTube live page as well. Uh, we hope that you have a great weekend. Stay warm out there because the uh, big cool down is coming, and we will see you next Wednesday night here for another episode of the Carolina Weather Group.